Well, the sermon passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12. Uh, we're just going to read to the end of verse 16 this morning. Your bulletins say 17, but we're just going to read to the end of verse 16. It's going to be on page 965 if you're using one of the blue Bibles. 2 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal possession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to life. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Well, as we jump back into Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, I think we'll be well served to remember some of the background. So back in Acts chapter 18, we read that the apostle Paul having been in Athens, uh, went to the city of Corinth. He spent the years of 51 to 52 AD there. Uh, he supported himself by making tents. He preached the gospel first to the Jewish community, then to the Gentiles there, and he founded and pulled together a church with the new believers. Uh, after about 18 months in the city, in about 52 AD, he went to Ephesus, and we know he spent three years there. And during that time, his relationship with the church at Corinth became complicated. Uh, he wrote a letter to the church there addressing concerns that he had. They wrote a letter back to him, pushing back on some of his teaching, questioning his authority. Uh, that letter was delivered along with a report that the church in many ways had descended into fighting and moral chaos. So Paul wrote another letter the one that we have in our Bibles called 1 Corinthians. He's addressing the, the letter that Corinth wrote to him, and he's pressing in on some of his concerns about their conduct and doctrine. And at the end of that letter, in 1 Corinthians 16, he told them that he was coming to visit them. He had to change his plans a couple of times, as we saw earlier in 2 Corinthians. So he sent Timothy, sort of his trusted protege, to visit the church on his behalf. And, and Timothy discovered, when he arrived, he discovered a church in chaos. Paul's opponents had been urging the church to reject his leadership, and it seems that a large portion of the congregation had followed him. And so Timothy brought this report back to Paul. And so Paul decided to go right to Corinth and resolve the issues. That visit turned out to be a difficult one. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he describes it as a painful visit. A large portion of the church had, had openly rebelled against him. Uh, it seems that they insulted him publicly. And so Paul decided instead of staying and fighting and creating further conflict, he would just leave. He would just sort of bear the humiliation of departing an insulted man rather than blowing things up in the church. So he went back to Ephesus. He wrote another letter to the church. That's the third letter that Paul wrote that we know about. That one's lost to history. Uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions this third letter. He describes it as tearful and severe. And he says that letter to the church at Corinth by his good friend Titus. And so that's sort of where our passage for this morning opens. Uh, there in verse 12 of, of chapter 2, 
Uh, we read that Paul left Ephesus and went to Troas, preaching the gospel of Christ. So we have a, a map for you here. I hope this will be helpful. I think it's always helpful just to remember, like, these are real places. Like, these things really happen. They're not just fairy tales. Paul's giving us a, a real report here. So you see Ephesus there on the uh, right-hand side of your map. He went up to the north um, into Troas. Uh, Paul is stationed, on. you can see, on the opposite side of the Aegean Sea. So for you all, it would be this way, uh, across from Corinth. So he sends Titus over to Corinth, and then Paul himself goes north from Ephesus up to Troas. So it's sort of up on the coast on the upper right-hand portion of the map. And it seems that Titus was supposed to meet him there in Troas. Paul is understandably anxious to see his friend and to hear about the church's response to his letter. Right? Would this, this painful and severe letter, would it bring about repentance? Would it bring about restoration? Or, or would the church be further hardened in their opposition to him and the gospel? So Paul goes to Troas and he waits. He, he looks for Titus, presumably on, on every ship that's coming in, and Titus doesn't show up. And so Paul is concerned. There in verse 13, he says that his spirit was troubled. And so even though he had a good sort of opportunity for ministry there, in verse 12, he says that a, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Even though ministry there in Troas was going well, he left. And he went looking for Titus uh, there in Macedonia. So Macedonia is sort of on the upper left-hand part of your map. Uh, that might seem like a weird decision to us. Like if I were to say, hey, I'm going to meet you in Philadelphia sometime in the spring. And then you don't show up, and so I go looking for you in Chicago, right? But communication was difficult in those times. Uh, travel uh, was slow and oftentimes dictated by the weather. Paul likely concluded that Titus had missed his window to sail. There's only really specific times in the spring that you can uh, sail across the Aegean to Troas. And so Paul must have assumed that he would meet him sort of overland in Macedonia. So you guys can take down the map. Thanks for that. But from this point, Paul winds up on a digression that's going to take him about four chapters. So Paul tells us he was in Ephesus. He went up to Troas, having sent Titus over to Corinth. He was anxious in his soul. He was worried when Titus didn't show up in Troas. So he went looking for him in Macedonia. And then Paul just leaves the story for four chapters and goes to talk about other things. It's not until chapter 7 that we find out what happened. So I'm just going to go ahead and skip ahead and spoil the ending for you because it feels like that's, you know, at this rate it's going to take us until 2027 to get to chapter 7. So let me just tell you what happens with Titus there in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 5 to 7, Paul picks up the thread again. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. There's a happy ending to this story. Paul did eventually meet up with Titus in Macedonia, and the, and, and the joy of seeing his friend and knowing that his friend was safe was no doubt tremendous, but what Paul was really excited about was Titus's report that the church at Corinth had repented. They had softened in their position towards him, and so uh, they were greatly comforted. But that's not where we are in chapter 2. Instead, what we see is that Paul launches from this point in chapter 2 into a discussion of his ministry that, as I said, is going to take all the way until chapter 7. 
uh, in, in really the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6, Paul is going to contrast his work and his way of life, his ministry, uh, to, to those of the false teachers that the, the Corinthians have been so tempted to embrace. It seems most of the church had repented from their rebellion against Paul. Right? They repented of taking the side of these false teachers. But there was a, a small holdout faction. Towards the end of this letter, Paul's going to address them directly. But, but here Paul begins to teach the church what faithful ministry looks like. Uh, before we dig too deeply into what Paul says here, really in uh, verses uh, 14 through 16, uh, it's worth taking a moment to, to think about why this would matter to us. Right? So Paul is going to tell us about his ministry, about the, the work of, of his sort of ministry team there. But Paul is an apostle. Right? He's uniquely commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to plant churches all over the Gentile world. Right? None of us have that exact same calling on our lives. And so it should, it, we should, it's worth asking why it should matter to us how he went about his business 2,000 years ago. And so I think in order to answer that question and make this passage useful in our lives, uh, we need to step back for a second and see the bigger picture, to see where Paul fits into the bigger picture and where we fit into the bigger picture. So we need to turn back in our Bibles just a bit. In some ways, the story that Paul is going to tell us here at the end of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, it, it begins shortly after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there at the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, the risen Lord Jesus meets with his disciples, and he gives them instructions on what the rest of their lives are really going to look like. There in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came and said to them, that is his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Then just a bit later in the book of Acts, we read Jesus said something similar uh, to his disciples before he ascended into heaven. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the idea is that the, the message of the gospel, that the proclamation of Jesus' sacrificial death and glorious resurrection, that's a message that can't be contained just in Jerusalem or even in Judea and Samaria, right? It's a message that has to spread out into the entire world. And so God's not sending carrier pigeons. He's not sending dreams and visions, but he's spreading this knowledge by sending people by sending his disciples out with this message. But that's not the end of people being sent out. In Acts chapter 9, we meet Paul, who at the time his name was Saul, which is confusing, but not our problem right now. Uh, Paul, Saul, is headed to Damascus uh, because he wants to persecute the church there, this fledgling church that's been established. Paul wants to wipe it out. He has, he has authority from the Jewish uh, leaders to, to arrest the Christian believers there and bring them back in chains. So Paul is storming on his way to Damascus, ready to stop this Christian movement, and the risen Lord Jesus confronts him on the road and calls him into his service. A bit later in that chapter, Jesus, in a vision, speaks to a man named Ananias, and he tells him to go to Paul. We read there, Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. 
how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So that's Ananias sort of politely pushing back on the idea that he would go uh, sort of minister to this maniac who loves killing Christians. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So for our purposes, notice that Paul has been chosen to take the name of Jesus out into the world to, to Gentiles, to kings, to Jews, and also that he will suffer greatly uh, in the course of his ministry. So Paul winds up preaching about Jesus there in Damascus. Opposition arises, so he goes to Jerusalem and preaches there. Later on, he winds up in the church in Antioch. And we read there in Acts chapter 13, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that is the, the believers there in Antioch, the Holy Spirit said, set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. From that point on, Paul is sent from Antioch. He travels around planting churches in places like Corinth, right? And this is the ministry that he's describing for us here at the end of 2 Corinthians 2. This is the ministry that he'd been sent by the church at Antioch to do. So Jesus commissions his disciples. Later, he commissions Paul to take the message of the gospel all over the world. And what's significant for us and sort of where we connect into this story is that this is not a work that would be finished in their lifetime, in Jesus' words, it would go on to the end of the age, that is, until he returns. And so what we see is that the disciples, and then later Paul, respond to Jesus' commission to spread the news about him by, by preaching the gospel and starting churches. Then those churches that they started would be swept up in that movement, in that mission, by sending out more people who would preach the gospel and start more churches. And those churches would be swept up in this movement and sent out, send out more people who would preach the, the gospel and start more churches. And so it's gone for the past 2,000 years. And so I think that's the place where Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians intersect with our congregation and our lives. We and every other church that loves the Lord Jesus, we are part of this much larger story, this plan to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus into the whole world. We as a church are called to devote ourselves to that work, to the work of proclaiming the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and then teaching believers to obey all that he commanded, and to the good work of sending people out to, to do that work in other places and among other people. So this means that we as a congregation are committed to training people to proclaim the gospel message. We're committed to sending people to places where there is a gospel need. We're committed to seeing new churches established and strengthened, supporting them until they can be sending churches of their own. Right, this is why we've planted other churches here in Northern Virginia. It's why we've planted Iglesia Bautista Espana Guilford. It's why we support the work that the Mafusis are doing in South Africa and the work going on in Gostovar. It's why we have I-55, so we can build relationships with people who don't yet know the Lord. It's why we're excited about the Snyder's plans to help plant a church in the UAE. But make no mistake, this is work that we are all called to do. It may be that you are called to, to go and, and long-term lead or support a work. It may be that you can go short-term 
to, to help, to see, to encourage what's going on. It may be that your role is to inform yourself uh, so that you can pray intelligently or to give generously to help provide for the needs of those who are going. Right? I rejoice in the fact that many in our church are doing all of those things or some of those things. But because that's true, because this work of spreading the gospel is work that we're called to as a church and we're all called to as individuals, we find ourselves in some way caught up in the same story that the Apostle Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians 2. And so what he says here about the nature of his work is going to be instructive and applicable to us. However it is that we participate in the spread of the good news, so in whatever capacity we are called to give of ourselves to see people all over the world come into contact with the message of salvation through faith in Christ, however it is that we're called to do that, we have to do that work in a way that's consistent with the methods and the motivations that stood behind the Apostle Paul's work. And so as we look here at what Paul tells us, let's keep one eye on our own lives and our own work to see that our participation in the gospel and its spread is in line with his. So if you look there in verse 14, uh, we see here in this section, really from verses 14 to 16, that Paul employs two word pictures that describe his experience of ministry. And this is where we're going to spend really all of our time this morning, just unpacking these two images that Paul gives us. The first there is the beginning of verse 14, where Paul says, but... Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So Paul tells the church at Corinth about his departure from Troas to Macedonia to search for Titus. And then he abruptly shifts to an expression of thanksgiving to God. And that transition probably catches you a bit off guard. But I think we can understand what he's saying. Paul is recounting for the church his experience sort of shooting around the Mediterranean world like a chicken with his head cut off, looking for his friend, going from one city to another, sometimes experiencing open doors for the gospel and looking for Titus. But what's clear here is that he doesn't think that he's just been wandering around aimlessly. Instead, he sees behind all of those particulars and specifics, he sees the sovereign direction of the Lord. Right? He's not been wandering. Right? The details of his travel and his ministry experiences, they're not random, but he says instead that he's being led by God. And so he's able to give thanks. The image that he uses here is of a, a triumphal procession. Right? That might not mean much to us, but it was something everyone in the Roman world would have known, even if they hadn't witnessed it personally. The idea is that if a Roman general won a particularly important or glorious or decisive military victory, the Roman Senate might confer on him the right to hold a victory parade called a triumph. And the goal of the parade was one thing. It was to celebrate and to exalt the general who had achieved the victory. In fact, sometimes in Roman history, the Senate was reluctant to confer this honor upon certain generals if, if they seemed like they might be a threat. They were some, somewhat too popular. Like they might sort of take over the government or run a coup. And so they would say, no, you can't actually have a triumph because giving you that much glory and popularity would actually be dangerous to the state. Right? This parade, this triumph parade, was aimed 
at, the, the pow at highlighting the power and the excellence and the glory of the general. The parade would work like this. The general would enter into Rome in a special chariot, particularly tall one that had been uh, tricked out with laurel branches drawn by four giant white horses. He would wear a special tunic that you were only allowed to wear for this particular kind of occasion with palm branches embroidered on it. He would have over that a, a purple toga with gold stars on it. On his head, he would wear a special wreath made of laurel, a sign of victory. And so as the general would parade in, the rest of the parade was aimed at giving the, the spectators a sense of the victory that had been achieved. So the spoils of war would be carried on behind him, gold, silver, jewels that had been plundered from the enemy. There'd be large pictures that were created and carried along, pictures of battle scenes or, or even of the towns and cities that had been captured. They would have the names of defeated and subjugated peoples put up on giant placards for everyone to see. Next in the parade, there were giant golden wreaths. There was, there was incense and aromatic substances. There were white bulls that were being marched along to be sacrificed to Jupiter. And then finally, there'd be groups of people. There'd be Roman dignitaries, senators, magistrates. Then there'd be chained prisoners of war. Oftentimes, many of them were taken and, and killed publicly at the end of the parade. And then there would also be Roman citizens who had been freed from captivity in that land. And so Paul's picture here is that in Christ, God is leading him along in just such a procession. That's how Paul sees his ministry, his travels all over the known world making the gospel known. It was like being part of the triumph parade of a great general. The question, though, is what role does Paul see himself and his ministry team? Notice he's talking about us here. He's not just talking about himself, but he's talking about uh, himself, presumably Timothy, Titus, other people on his ministry team. What role does he see that they're playing in this parade? Uh, there are two kind of common answers. I think the first one, and probably the most popular and widely accepted one, is that Paul sees himself as a prisoner or, or a defeated captive who's being paraded by God through the world. The idea is that back when he was Saul, a persecutor of the church, he was an enemy of Christ. But Jesus, as I said, confronted him on that road to Damascus and put an end to that hostility. He overwhelmed Paul and now, as it were, parades him around like a trophy of his victory. The sense of this interpretation is that Paul is emphasizing the humiliation and the social shame that has come upon him as an apostle of Jesus. He's saying that, look, being an apostle, it is not glorious. Right? It's like being a captive behind a victorious general. Uh, Paul had been rejected by the Jewish establishment. Churches like Corinth had rebelled against him. They preferred the ministry of slick-talking false teachers. Paul had suffered all sorts of hardship and famine and imprisonment. Right? Being an, an apostle wasn't impressive. It, it wasn't glorious. It was, it was more like being paraded around in chains. So that's a plausible understanding of what Paul says here. It's the most common, as I said, understanding of what he's saying. It's in line with, with what he says in some other places. Remember back in Acts chapter 9, Jesus told Ananias that part of Paul's commission was that he was going to suffer greatly, right? Uh, we read there in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses this expression in kind of a similar way. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, he says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. 
It, this is also consistent with the way that Paul uses this word picture of a triumph in Colossians. So he talks about, there he talks about Jesus' victory over the spiritual forces of evil in the world. And he uses the same image of a sort of triumphal parade. He says, he, that is Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So you can see it might be that this is the kind of image that Paul's trying to call up here in verse 14 when he talks about being led in triumphal procession. Right again, this would fit with Paul's larger argument against the false teachers in Corinth, that following the way of the crucified Lord Jesus, the way of the cross, was not going to be outwardly glorious and easy and impressive, but rather it would be clothed in humiliation and suffering. The other possibility, however, is that Paul sees himself not as a, as a captive, or I'm sorry, not as a, a sort of prisoner of the Lord, but as a, a trophy of Jesus' grace. It may, be, it may be that he sees himself as one of those Roman citizens who's been freed from captivity in a foreign country. Maybe he sees himself as a soldier in Jesus' victorious army. This would be a, a more positive spin on the image. Right, that he's celebrating not so much the suffering of Christ, but the, the deliverance and the salvation that he brings. Uh, both of those interpretations, I think, reflect something true. Uh, Paul may, many scholars suggest, be sort of intentionally vague, that he wants to call both of those images to mind, both the sort of humiliated suffering of a captive and also someone who's been freed and delivered. Right? The fact is, spreading the gospel does involve a certain amount of suffering. Right? The world applauds status and achievement and possessions. And so as we think about our own role in spreading the gospel, it is going to bring about trouble and difficulty in our lives. We will in some ways be like those captive prisoners. If you choose to forego a career, to go take the gospel somewhere where it isn't known, or if you forego a nicer car, and a bigger home, and trendier clothes, so that you can support missions. If you choose to be part of a church plant, despite the fact there's no programs for your teenagers, and you're going to have to do a lot more work and volunteering. Right, that, those kinds of choices don't make any sense to the world. They won't make any sense to your, your neighbors and your coworkers. Right, but that's the way of the cross. Right, that's what it means in some small way to follow in the parade behind a king who himself died for us. But it's also true that mission, our, our participation in this work to which Jesus has commissioned his church, it is also not just suffering, but it also is a response to his grace and salvation. So in some ways, we are like those captive enemies who have been sort of brought into subjugation, but we're also like, like delivered prisoners. Right? We take the gospel out into the world as those who've been saved we're motivated by love and gratitude and joy. And so we want that message to be heard by others who need to hear it. But I think whatever interpretation is correct, the force of Paul's image is unmistakable. Jesus is the conquering general. And all of this, this whole parade, Paul's life, Jesus' disciples going all over the world, the work of the church, the spread of the gospel into every corner of the world, uh, your participation in that mission, our participation as a church, it is all one giant parade aimed at glorifying and exalting and celebrating him. 
we don't have anything in our culture quite like a Roman triumph. Maybe a Super Bowl parade is the closest thing we get to. But this is a Super Bowl parade not aimed at celebrating a team, but aimed at celebrating one person. Right? This was on an entire national level, aimed at celebrating the, the victory and triumph of one man. And so I think that's how we understand the point of all of this. All of this is aimed at the glory of our general, our, our conquering hero. Right? When we were dead in our sins, when we were enemies of God, when we were enslaved to our sinful desires and under God's just condemnation, Jesus, the eternal Son of God in human flesh, died to save us from our sin. He lived a life of perfect obedience to God, but instead of enjoying the blessing and honor and glory that he deserved, he willingly gave up his life on the cross for us. He died there, taking our punishment on himself, experiencing the sin and the death that we deserved, sacrificing himself for us, standing under God's judgment as our substitute. And even though he died in, in shame and humiliation, he rose from the dead three days later in glory and honor. And so now he offers salvation, complete forgiveness, eternal life with God in a world made new. He offers that to anyone who will turn from their sins and put their trust in him. And so those of us who have experienced that forgiveness, those of us who know that grace and that mercy and salvation, those of us who have been brought out of spiritual death into spiritual life by the virtue of Jesus' awful suffering, well, our lives are now swept up in this magnificent parade. Our lives are now given to celebrating the triumph of our leader, our, our general, our conquering king. Brothers and sisters, that's the motivation for our participation in the mission. That's why we joyfully give our lives to, to see the gospel spread in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our region, and all around the world. Because Jesus is worth it. Because he's conquered his enemies and delivered us from captivity. He deserves to be exalted by all people in every place. So it's worth asking, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, what is your life exalting? If we were to look at the, the things that capture your heart, the things that capture your money, your time, your ambitions? What is it that you're actually exalting? Who's in that chariot, in the triumphal procession of your life? We are all investing our lives in the praise and the exaltation of whatever seems most glorious to us. We are all participating in some kind of triumphant parade, celebrating whatever we perceive to be salvation and hope. For some, that thing is family or, or success or wealth or academic prestige or power or pleasure or comfort. And you can tell because you'll be willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to, to achieve that end. But for followers of Christ, we see our lives, we see our ministries in some way like Paul's, a participation in this grand parade with Jesus at the center. So that's the first word picture that Paul uses there. He pictures his life and his ministry as, as being swept up in this triumphal procession. 
Uh, there at the end of verse 14 and through the beginning of verse 16, we see the, the second image. Jesus leads him in procession, and we pick up there in the middle of verse 14. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. As I mentioned, oftentimes these Roman triumphal processions would be attended by huge quantities of burned incense so that even after the parade went by and it disappeared from view, there was a lingering aroma of victory. That seems to be the idea that Paul's picking up there in verse 14. In Christ, God is leading Paul and his team in this triumphal procession. And through them, now God is spreading a fragrance. The image is that Paul and his team are, are like incense bearers in the parade. Right? Their job is to, to spread the smell of Christ's victory everywhere they go. What is that smell? What is that fragrance that they're spreading? There at the end of verse 14, Paul tells us it's the knowledge of him. Right? It's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for sinners. Right? In verse 15, he explains, he says, they are the aroma of Christ to God. Right? Their ministry is like a fragrance. Right? The smell of Jesus that rises up to the Lord as a, a sort of pleasing aroma. But as the, the smell of Jesus, as the, the knowledge of Christ and the proclamation of the gospel, as that aroma comes into contact, not just with sort of God in the heavens, but also into, into contact with the people of this world, you see there that it's met with two radically different responses. There at the end of verse 15, we, we read about two different groups of people, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And when the aroma of Christ through the ministry of Paul and his friends and the preaching of the gospel, comes into the, the nostrils of those two different groups, what we see is there are two radically different perceptions. Paul says there in verse 15 that to those who are being saved through faith in Christ, this knowledge of him, this proclamation of him, is like a fragrance of life. It's sweet and pleasant and invigorating to the soul of the believer. But Paul says there to those who are perishing, the knowledge of Jesus is like the stench of death. It's rotten. The idea of dying to yourself, turning from your sin, and following after Jesus is, is repulsive to their souls. Friends, there's, there's good news and there's bad news, obviously, here in what Paul says. The bad news is that when you and I go out into the world on mission, when we tell our family members about Jesus, when we share the gospel message with a coworker or a neighbor, when we go across the world to tell others about the love of God, that he would send his son to die for sinners, the bad news is that for some people, that's going to smell like death. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be distasteful, and they're not going to be grateful to you for bringing that smell into their nostrils. The cross will be a message that smells like death to them. The call to come and follow after Jesus will sound awful. They won't be able to see any hope or life or joy or, or future in Jesus. 
Because he's not precious to them. His suffering isn't a treasure to them. His death for sinners doesn't smell sweet. But instead, it's just the opposite. And so for these people, they reject the message that could bring them life. And if they persist in rejecting it, they will die in their sins. And again, friend, it's very likely they will reject you as well. The messenger who brought this foul-smelling odor to their door. Christian, this is what you sign up for when you join in that triumphal procession, when you join in Christ's great victory parade, when you take your place in the mission that began back with the disciples and Paul and the church at Antioch, that mission that will continue on, perhaps even after our lives until the Lord Jesus returns. Right? When you join in that work, you are signing up for this rejection. You are signing up to smell like death to some people to be rejected the way Jesus was rejected and still is rejected by many. But the good news is there is another side of the coin. right? If the knowledge of Christ spread by his people is a stench to some, Paul says it's the smell of life to others. There in verse 15, Paul mentions those who are being saved. In verse 16, we read that the the knowledge of Christ is the, the fragrance from life to life. Those who are being saved hear about Jesus, and it's a delight to them. The news that the Son of God died in their place is the most wonderful and glorious smell they've ever imagined. And so they rejoice in it. They believe in him. They leave their sins behind. They join in the procession. As Paul says in Romans chapter 10, we read earlier in the service, they hear and they believe. They treasure him, and they receive eternal life. Brothers and sisters, as terrible as the bad news is, as awful as it is to be the stench of death to a world that's perishing, this news is so good that it makes any difficulty and any sacrifice more than worth it. How how glorious, what a privilege it is that we get to be part of this ministry, doing our part, whatever it may be, to bring the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ to people who will, by God's grace, smell life in it. So those are the two images Paul uses to describe his ministry. He is part of Jesus' triumphal procession, conquered as an enemy, rescued from spiritual captivity, and he's also something of an incense bearer. By his proclamation of the gospel, bringing the smell of Jesus to a world that, that perceives it as either life or death, There at the end of verse 16, Paul asks a rhetorical question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? You don't need to be a Bible scholar to to figure out that the answer to that is, is no one. Or perhaps only God is. Right, and friends, that's an important place for us to sort of conclude Because it's really easy for us to to hear a sermon, to read about Paul, and to sort of get yourself on the wrong side of the equation, to sort of locate your life in the wrong ledger, uh, or the wrong column, rather, in the ledger. And and, and if you do, you're going to wind up stressed and sort of worried or burdened by what Paul says here. But this great work of making disciples, 
of proclaiming the knowledge of Christ all around the world that Jesus has sent us out on as a church and as individuals. This, this program of plot proclamation that Paul was sent out on, on the Damascus Road, right? it's not really about you. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not something, Paul says, we're sufficient for. Right? That much is obvious. Uh, the point here isn't first and foremost about you going and doing more, resolving to give more money, taking a trip to South Africa, praying more, speaking to your neighbors more about Jesus. Though I think those are all great things to do. Those are great ways to apply this sermon, and I hope you do them. But friends, that's not the point. The point here is that if you are in Christ, if by the amazing grace of God you were given the ability to smell the aroma of life and hope and everlasting joy in the good news about Jesus, if that's the case for you, then your life now is caught up in this marvelous procession. And that procession is all about our conquering king. It's all about rejoicing in him and his victory over everything that stood against our souls and worked against our eternal joy. Right? If your team wins the Super Bowl, you know what to do at the parade. You go and you celebrate. You have a great time. If you're a Roman citizen and your general defeats the enemy, you know what to do. You show up and you celebrate his greatness. If you're a Christian, then your life and your mission is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of your wonderful king and savior everywhere you go. And so maybe the, the best place to go from here is to the Lord's table. Because here at the table, we have on display for us the broken body and the shed blood of our great and victorious Lord. These emblems of suffering and defeat by which, strangely enough, counterintuitively enough, he has conquered our enemies and delivered our souls. So brothers and sisters, let's come now to the table and remember what our great victorious king has done for us and join in the celebration parade. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your great love that you would send your son to die for us while we were still sinners and enemies. Lord Jesus, we celebrate you as our great conquering general, the one who by his broken body and shed blood has delivered us from the enemy of our souls. Holy Spirit, would you help us to have great affections for Christ? Would you create in us a great joy as we contemplate the, the triumphal procession of the Lord Jesus? Would you shape us into his image and would you, would you send us out to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him? And we ask that you would do all these things for his glory and our joy. Amen.